People say, you know, you Christians, you know, you're giving up this life for the next life. And oftentimes we say, yes, that's what we're doing. No, no. Eternal life is now. See, we give up our own approach to life to get God's approach so that we get this life and we get the next life. This is what I call a maximized life. No matter the changing fads, political or social climate of the day, Jesus always intrigues people. He stands out. Jesus accomplished the work of his Father like no other with everything he is. Pastor Daniel will explain why this man changed the world and how his purpose persists even in these dark times. Now, here's Pastor Daniel in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 1, with part one of his message entitled, Sneak Peek. curious people by nature. All of us are. I remember when I was growing up, there was a TV show called uh, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. A guy named Robin Leach. Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. I'm your host, Robin Leach. And, and, and people watch this show. I mean, for those of you who are, who are younger, you, you know this as, you know, it shows how culture has changed. Now we just have cribs. So you younger folks, you know cribs because, I mean, what young person wants to hear about lifestyles of the rich and famous? So instead you have cribs where they go and they see a famous person's home. And all of us are fascinated when we get to take a look at somebody's life who is very talented at something. Like, you know, we were talking, Pastor Bill and I, on that video about what it must have been like to, to see Beethoven at work. His famed Ninth Symphony. Most people don't know it, but Beethoven was deaf. He was deaf for 10 years when it came time to write his Ninth Symphony. You know, but you might say, oh, well, Beethoven or Michelangelo. Do you remember in 2008 in the Beijing Olympics, there was a swimmer whose name's Michael Phelps. You guys remember him? He broke the record. He won eight gold medals in that Olympics. Eight gold medals. Totally broke a record. I remember at that time, reading an article in the New York Post that spoke about Michael Phelps' diet. Does anybody remember this? Michael Phelps, when he was training, he was training six days a week for about five hours a day, and his diet was about 12,000 calories a day. Now, don't try this at home, people, please. (laughs) I want to read to you his diet when he was training, right? For breakfast, three fried egg sandwiches loaded with cheese, lettuce, tomatoes, fried onions, and mayonnaise, two cups of coffee, one five-egg omelet, one bowl of grits, three slices of French toast, topped with powdered sugar, three chocolate chip pancakes. That was breakfast. Lunch, one pound of enriched pasta, two large ham and cheese sandwiches with mayo on white bread. Energy drinks packing a thousand calories. And then dinner, one pound of pasta, an entire pizza, 
and more energy drinks. Now, you know, I get excited because he's got pasta for lunch and pasta for dinner with pizza. (laughs) But when you think about that, why are we fascinated by this? Why did people read and comment on the internet forever about Michael Phelps' diet? Well, because the guy was the greatest Olympian who ever lived. And we're interested in understanding what it takes to be the best of the best. And that's why there's, there's a whole industry of magazines that try and give you a sneak peek into what it's like to, to be in the house of Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie or, or to find out what it's like for your favorite politician or whatever. We're fascinated by this. And why I bring all this up is simple because we've been talking here on Sunday mornings about this idea of divintimacy or knowing God, intimacy with God. And as Christians, this is important to us. We want to know what it's like to know God. We devote our lives to understanding and growing in this relationship. The most essential relationship that we can have as human beings. And in John 17, we get a sneak peek into Jesus's intimacy with the Father. And so in a lot of ways, this is like getting a look under the hood of the ultimate example of divintimacy. Because no matter what your faith tradition is, no matter what you believe, everybody holds Jesus of Nazareth as the man. And as Christians, we believe that he is the man in the way he explained himself. That we believe that he is fully God, he is fully man. We believe, without a shadow of a doubt, that he holds a unique place as being God's Messiah, the anointed one, who's going to die to take away the sins of the world. And that is the way Jesus, the man, explained himself. Now, if you look at the New Age, everybody talks about Christ consciousness. What they're saying is they're saying Jesus is the man, but we can have what Jesus had. So we don't want Jesus to be who he said he was. We want Jesus, we want what Jesus has. We just don't want it to come the way Jesus told us it would come. But we know that Jesus is the man. If you talk to a Muslim, they believe that Jesus was a prophet, which means that what? Jesus was the man. Even secular media knows that Jesus is the man. I mean, if you looked at Rolling Stone a few years back, Kanye West, when he was real popular, is a picture of Kanye West on the cover with a crown of thorns. The passion of Kanye West. Madonna did a tour where her last tour at the end of it, she was mock crucified. Sports athletes wear crosses. People say, praise God, praise Jesus. I just want to be like Jesus. See, everybody knows that Jesus is the man. And we're going to get a chance to look at why Jesus is the man. Philip Melanchthon, the great uh, Puritan reformer, said this, There is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than this prayer offered by the Son of God himself. We're going to get a sneak peek In John 17, I'm going to take verses 1 to 19 this week, and Pastor Bill next week is going to close out our knowing series with verses 20 to 26. But today we get a sneak peek into the divintimacy that Jesus had. And we're going to get to learn very important things. So open your Bibles, John 17. My section here, verses 1 to 19, breaks down 
First, Jesus prays for himself in verses 1 to 5, and then he prays for his disciples in verses 6 to 19. So we're going to first take the first five verses. It says this, in verse 1 of John 17, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So first, Jesus, in these five verses, prays for himself. And we see in verse 1, verse 4, and verse 5, our very first point, that Jesus is obsessed with God's glory. Jesus is obsessed with God's glory. How do I know? Look at verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. Verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And verse 5, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Wow. Over and over and over and over again, when Jesus is praying for himself, he's obsessed with God's glory. Now, it's amazing because we hear that, this idea of God's glory all the time. Have you ever asked yourself, what is God's glory? I mean, because if Jesus is obsessed with it, if Jesus is asking his Father to bring glory to himself in Jesus, and if Jesus is obsessed with God's glory, obviously you know that I'm going to make the case that we should be also. The question becomes is, what is God's glory? I want to explain it to you. In simplistic terms, the glory of God encompasses all of the attributes of God. So the glory of God is the complete totality of all of God's attributes. This idea of glory, it refers to the visible splendor of God's manifold perfections. The glory of God is the exhibition of his inherent excellence. Now, those are some big theological terms, aren't they? It is the bringing forth into real time of all that makes God, God. The reason we call him God, the reason we worship him as God, it is the bringing forth into the world of what makes God, God. Someone said it this way, that God's glory is the outflowing of the inner workings of the Trinity itself. So it is the working out into the world of exactly who God is. That's what we call his glory. It's God's radiance unveiled. You could say it this way and more colloquially, that to glorify God is simply what God does in our experience and what we see when God goes public with who he is. God's glory is the experience and the things that we see when God goes public with who he is. That's God's glory. And Jesus is obsessed with God's glory. Over, Lord, glorify 
me as I glorify you, he says. He says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work that you have given me to do. Now, if Jesus is obsessed with God's glory, we know he is talking about the cross that's coming and the resurrection. Because he says, the hour has now come. Now it's time. All of Jesus' life now is coming to this crescendo where the cross is going to happen and where the resurrection is going to happen. I was just talking with somebody. I've been having an email exchange with an old friend about why Jesus? Because what is the big deal about Jesus? Why are Christians so focused? Why, why only Jesus? What's the big deal about this guy? And I was telling my friend, I said, look, Jesus' teachings are phenomenal But the point, Jesus accomplished more in his death and resurrection than all of his teachings. People have come to teach Jesus came to die and rise again. And this is what separates Jesus. This is what makes Jesus distinct. The hours come. See, Jesus is pointing to the cross. The, The time is now. And it's interesting that Jesus is glorifying God by accomplishing the work that God has given him to do. Listen to John chapter 4, verse 34. It says this. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus is saying, look, I get nourished. I am full. I am satisfied with doing the work that God has given me to do and finishing that work. So Jesus, his glorification of the Father came to do what God created him to do. And by extension, the same is true for us, isn't it? Do you realize that God did not send Jesus to die on a cross and rise again so you can come and sit in a pew in a building called church? God apprehended each one of us along life's way for a specific purpose that he has uniquely gifted and equipped you for. And the question for us is, do we have that same obsession that Jesus has? Are we the type of people who say, look, I am obsessed with seeing God's radiance displayed in the world. I want to be a vehicle so that God can go public. And for each one of us, that calling is unique and different. For me or Pastor Bill, it's one of our functions is standing up here and encouraging you to see the grace of God in your own lives. Encouraging you to see the circumstances of your lives and the things that are going on in your life as an opportunity for God to go public through your life. But the problem that we have in America where we live in a world that says, listen, do what you want to do. Have your own way. You know, my honorary uncle, Frank Sinatra, said, I'll do it my way. But you know what the problem with that is? When you do it your way, you do it the wrong way. When you do it your way, you get it wrong, and so do I. But when we come to God like we just sang, Lord, consume me from the inside out. Lord, what's your way for my life? What is the work that you have given to me that only I can do? And we get on board with that. That is a lifestyle that's obsessed with God's glory. And just like Jesus, part of being obsessed with God's glory, living for God's glory, we see in dying to ourselves. John 12, verses 23 and 24. 
says, but Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain or fruit. Jesus is saying, look, the only way to get a flower to blossom is for a seed to die. It gives up its life so that a flower can blossom. A caterpillar gives up its life so that it can go into a cocoon and come out as a butterfly. The only way you can get good wine is for some grapes to get crushed. The only way we get potpourri is for things that have scent to be crushed. That is a natural principle of living. But if we, we live in a society where the idea of dying to ourselves, it runs roughshod over American cultural values. And that's why we got what we got today. Because no one's willing to die that others may have life. No one's willing to lay down their lives for their spouses, to serve instead of be served. But Jesus says, look, I'm going to be glorified because I'm going to give up my life so that others may have it. And this church and every church around the globe is a testimony of that. So we begin with the reality that Jesus is obsessed with God's glory. Now, look at verses 2 and 3. He says, As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Second, look at this. Eternal life is now. Eternal life is now. Look at verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I want to blast open a myth. I hear this all the time. People say, you know, you Christians, you know, you're giving up this life for the next life. And oftentimes we say, yes, that's what we're doing. No, no. Eternal life is now. See, we give up our own approach to life to get God's approach so that we get this life and we get the next life. This is what I call a maximized life. We're not giving up this life for the next life. We're getting this life and we get the next life. Eternal life is to know you, the only true and living God and Jesus Christ you sent. What this teaches us is that eternal life is not something you get later. It's something that's for right now. Amen, right? That's pretty awesome, I think. Eternal life's right now. And later. I mean, we get all this and an eternal life in the hereafter. We get Jesus now and later. We get life now and eternally and abundantly. We get it all. Jesus came not to give up this life for the next life. Sure, we're dying to ourselves. We're giving up our own self-styled life to get the resurrected life of Jesus in this life. And as somebody who didn't grow up in the church didn't grow up in such a way that this was the way that I lived. I had the old life. I know what that was like. I've been down that road. And I, I, don't get me wrong, I learned a lot there. But that wasn't real life. Real life is waking up in every day and saying, man, God, what are you going to do today? And going to bed at the end of the night and saying, man, that was a God thing. <laughs> wow. 
Wow. You know what? And that has nothing to do with teaching here at Crossroads. It has nothing to do with that. With a heart that says, look, Lord, if eternal life is knowing you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent, then whatever your office in life is, it's an opportunity to know him. I mean, isn't this series called Knowing? It's one of our mission and vision statements as a church. Knowing, growing, and showing. That's what we're doing. Jesus said eternal life is to know the only true God. Now, I need to make the point. It says the only true God. You know what only means? That means uniqueness. That means there's no other gods. And it's not only the only God, it's the only true God. That God has absolute and total integrity within himself. Absolutely genuine. Absolute authenticity. There's only one God. And that is the true and living God. People don't like that. We live, I get this, we live in a secularized, pluralistic society. As part, and I, I wrote a book on this actually. It's amazing. It's like being in this generation where we have access to more information than any other generation. I mean, if you want to check out something, you just pull out your phone. It's right in your pocket. You have access to information like nobody's business, right at your fingertips, right at a computer, wisdom from all over the world. And because of that, humanity says, listen, how do we navigate this? Well, everybody's truth is their own truth. We can't say which way is right and wrong. But the thing that's amazing about that is as very educated Americans, we don't realize that that is actually a illogical position to hold. Because you can't say it's your truth because then it's not truth. Truth is not user-driven. It's not self-determinant. Truth is truth. And so even though we give people, and I'm grateful we live in a country where we respect people who have other opinions, we can't say that that's just because they're opinion. It's the truth. And we live in a day and age where people define tolerance by saying, well, I agree with you. That's not tolerance. Tolerance is saying, I disagree with you, but I still love you. That's tolerance. And it's unfortunate that we live in a day and age where if you don't value what I value, now you are closed-minded and judgmental. But it's amazing that the people who call you closed-minded and judgmental are being equally closed-minded and judgmental because you don't agree with what they believe. It's a phenomenon. People say, I'm so open-minded, but I really don't like those people who are closed-minded. It's like, well, that's intolerant. True tolerance is saying, I don't agree with you, but I respect that you have that opinion. And when you are talking with people, I encourage you to be tolerant in the way the word is meant to exist. Where you say, look, I don't agree with you, but you know what? I respect you as a person. And let your disagreements with people, whether they be political, theological, economic, or whatever, let it be on that level where you're saying, look, I don't agree with you, but you know what? I respect you, and I respect the fact that you have the right to your own opinion just the way I do. Jesus is real. God's glory is ever-present as He works in the lives of those who follow Him. As Pastor Daniel noted, Jesus was constantly referring to God's glory, which encompasses all of his attributes. We heard about how each of us has a calling, which requires that we deny our own desires. 
That's hard in today's culture. It's why we live for more than eternal life, but also for our lives now, living as God desires for His glory. For most of us, our smartphone is an extension of our body. They are constantly ringing and dinging, telling us what to do and where to go next. We want to encourage you to subscribe to the Jesus is Real podcast. Each week, the programs right here on the radio are available in podcast format. So if you miss one of the broadcasts, you can always catch up by subscribing to the Jesus is Real podcast. Log on to JesusIsRealRadio.com. Next time on Jesus is Real Radio, we'll continue our look at real intimacy with God. With faith and trust in Jesus comes access to Him, no matter who you are. We'll get to hear how His protection serves us to bring us joy. Even in death, Jesus knew joy because He knew that God's plan is for our ultimate well-being. And we can take comfort in that. He protects us, brings us joy, and He sends us out on His behalf. You've been listening to Jesus is Real Radio with Pastor Daniel Fusco of Crossroads Community Church. Pastor Daniel will continue teaching through this series next time on Jesus is Real Radio.